Yeah, let's just do the individual part. So uh, we'll do that. We'll do that ending uh, chorus. Yeah, uh, we'll just do that like the outro. So, uh, let's just do, let's just go from like it shall never be removed at the end and then go into that intro into it as well. Continue to worship our awesome God. Thank you, Dave, for that great reminder from God's word and uh, the reality that hits close to home. Thank you for preaching half of my sermon. But let us open God's Word together. Acts chapter 5 is where we'll be continuing on from verses 33 to 42. Um, that's on page 532 of the Blue Book, uh, the Blue Bible in the chair in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one. And the only promise that you have to make, and you can make that to yourself, is that you read it. Start with the Gospel of John and ask those questions of what you learned about who God is, who Jesus is. And then that will quickly follow through with who you are and what you need. And we love having those conversations. But as you turn to Acts chapter 5, verses 33 to 42, let me ask you this question. What do you get excited for? What is that thing that just brings joy to your life that you just can't wait to get to? I know if you're a kid, you're probably thinking, I got one more week left. You know, I got one more week until I can open those presents. I got one more week and a church service before I might be opening those presents, depending upon how your family goes. Maybe it's Christmas, maybe it's birthdays, maybe it's the birth of a child, maybe it's getting on vacation, maybe it's a new book, maybe it's the weekend. Whatever it may be, what gets you excited? And let me follow up. Is one of those things in that list include getting beaten up? No, right? The idea of getting beaten up doesn't bring excitement and joy into our lives. But in Acts chapter 5, verses 33 to 42, we see an example of possibly 12 men, the apostles, excited because they got beaten up. Now, either those people need to go see a counselor so that they can get their heads shaked, or there's something else there. They don't need a counselor, by the way. There's something else there. Spoiler. So Acts chapter 5, verses 33 to 42 says this. The word of the Lord says this. When they heard this, <clears throat> the Sanhedrin, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he has said to them, men of Israel, take care, he says, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice 
And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. In verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Awesome God, we come together to continue to worship you. I pray that as we listen or as I preach, that indeed we worship, that we make much of you. I pray that we would decrease and that you would increase, as we were reminded just moments ago. So Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified. I want to speak of you and praise your name. Lord, I can't do this on my own, so will you not make this turn out well? So Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with necessary power and appropriate affection. Lord, please use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. In verses 33 to 39, we see the plans of man will fail while the plans of God will succeed. It's quite a simple little fact that we see when we get into the Bible here. I think something that I get caught up in often is that I get stressed when things don't go my way. And I know I'm not the only one. Okay, and if someone's like, oh, I never get stressed when I, things don't go my way, you're lying, and you need to repent, okay? But I'm reminded of the greatest miracle that is even happening right here, God's providence and how he carefully arranges circumstances just like this to accomplish his will. In verse 33, the religious leaders are mad because the apostles just won't stop. They've told them many times, stop preaching the name of Jesus Christ. And what do the apostles do? They keep doing it. They're like an annoying gnat that won't go away. And they keep saying the same thing over and over and over again. You killed Jesus. He died, was buried, and three days later he rose again. They're angry to the point of rage. They're furious. They're uncontrollable in their emotions that come from being filled with jealousy rather than being filled with the Spirit. So full of jealousy, they wanted to kill someone. You really can tell what a person is filled with by observing how they react to circumstances, by the way. So why did the Sanhedrin want to kill? Why do they want to do this? Why do they want to kill the apostles, these men, What had they done that would deserve such a response? You would think that they would be murderers or something. But no, all they were doing was preaching the gospel and making people who were sick well again. So let's go back at the Jewish response to Jesus. And who and you will see the Sanhedrin is the same has the same thing. It's the teaching of the apostles that is getting the response we see. It's like any sort of message would have been okay except for who Jesus is. That salvation comes from no one else except through Jesus Christ. And what brings this malicious and spiteful response of the Jewish authorities is that. That salvation comes by no other name except through Jesus Christ. 
This is the same for us today. We live in a postmodern society where it's okay to preach and teach about Jesus as long as you keep it to yourself. And everyone is allowed to believe whatever you want as long as you don't talk about what other people believe. They say, live and let live. As a famous YouTuber says, as long as you don't believe Jesus and the New Testament to be true. You know, in fact, I was watching or listening to a recent podcast that was a podcast on a podcast. I know that's confusing. But it was on this interview of a social uh, media influencer named Logan Paul. He's a big name. Don't look him up because all of his stuff is awful. But the interesting thing about this interview that this Christian was watching and critiquing was that he was utterly insulted, Logan, was utterly insulted and offended and disgusted by the very fact, calling even the belief in Jesus Christ as the only way to the Father as silly. This was just last week. That no one comes to the Father except through Jesus is silly. Here's the problem with the gospel, though. When you go and tell others the message about Jesus, it says that all other religions are worthless. As one person put it, Christianity may exist within the marketplace of ideas as one among many, but it claims to exclusivity will be met with fierce resistance and ridicule. That's what we see with the Sanhedrin. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Savior. He was born of the Virgin Mary, as we've been singing. He grew up. He died on the cross. And he died, literally died, was buried for three days, and then he rose again, proving that everything he is and says was true. The message of Jesus says that there is a holy God, that we have sinned against him. It is because of that sin that we are spiritually dead, meaning we can't do anything at all on our own to save ourselves. That's what a dead person can do, nothing. And because of that sin, we deserve one thing and one thing alone, and that is hell. But God provided a way to be made right before him, to have our sins, our treason, our brokenness healed and forgiven. And in his name, Jesus Christ died and rose again. Belief in him will bring and give freedom. It will heal your brokenness and and make you whole and make you right before God, enabling you to live for him like what we saw today. Outside of the power of God, we will continue to run after all the things that do glitter and that aren't gold. So what do we see in the council's response is unbelief in the message about Jesus. Unbelief has always had an irrational aspect to it. You know, like you can think of the people who uh, don't believe that the world is a sphere. Like, that's pretty irrational. I hate to break it to you. There's nothing rational about the way that the Sanhedrin rejected the message the apostles were teaching, except that they were all people who were in darkness and desired to remain there. So in verse 34, we see that God's providence, however, that there is a man that seems to have a cooler head. He seems to have his head on straight a little bit. 
And Gamaliel, who is actually someone who will be introduced to later, once again, uh, as the mentor of a man who stood by and watched with delight as the people stoned a man named Stephen. He was Paul's mentor. First Saul, as my, I remember my kids singing this song, Saul was a bad man, Paul was a good man, I don't know. But he was a mentor of a man taking the mess, and that man, Paul, would eventually become the greatest messenger, missionary that the world could ever know. Gamaliel is a man that doesn't have much in common with the Sadducees as he's a Pharisee. He's more concerned with the Torah, with, with God's word and tradition rather than politics. But as a respected man, he orders the apostles to be put out of the room. So with a warning in verse 35, he calls the councils to stop and think about what you're doing before you do something really stupid. As he says, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Because in verse 36 to 37, he points out two other examples of people who started a movement and how both of them were dead and that the movement had scattered. We don't know anything about the first man other than that, that he was there, but he probably made some sort of claim that he himself was the Messiah. The second man we actually know a little bit about, named Judas, because there's a Jewish historian named Josephus who actually talks about the, him and how he caused a revolt during the census. His success was the same. He died, and his followers scattered. So you see the pattern that Gamaliel is trying to, to create here. Things of man fail, things of God continue. So he reminds the other leaders in verse 38, in light of these historical examples, he says, keep away from them and let them alone, he says. We've been here before, he says to the people, so let's wait and see what happens. And he doesn't wait very long because, again, remember Paul was standing by with pride as he watched the people stone a missionary. How we react to situations shows our belief or unbelief in who God is. And the council's response to the message about Jesus being taught and preached shows their heart, but he gives two reasons to leave the apostles alone. The first one is, if this plan or this undertaking is a man, it will fail, he says. And I'm reminded of Psalm 2, verses 1 to 4, which says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he gives them another reason in verse 39. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Maybe he, he, th- he thinks of Proverbs 16, verse 3, which says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Or how God sovereignly worked through Joseph in Genesis 45, verse 5, when he says, Now do not be distressed, as Joseph says to his brothers, or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. 
Or maybe the prophecies, like in Ezekiel verse 24, chapter 24, I am the Lord, I have spoken, it shall come to pass, I will do it, I will not go back. And you can go on and on and on and look at examples throughout God's word of God's plans continuing to go forward and that stupidity in trying to undermine his plan. We can look at the manger, this baby being born, seemingly hopeless and helpless, who would grow to be a man who dies on the cross to take away our sins. See, things of God last. His word will stand forever, as First Peter 1 says, for all flesh is like grass and all is glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So what's the big deal with all of this? This idea that the plans of man will fail while the plans of God will succeed. I was reminded this week of Mark 8, where Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, by turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus rebukes Peter for not looking at the Messiah the way that God does. And Peter was looking at Jesus as some sort of political leader who would free the Jews from a Roman subjugation. But Peter was caught up in the thought that the Messiah, that Jesus Christ, would never suffer. And just like with Jesus' words to Peter, Gamaliel shows us something important. There are two ways to look at things. God's way and man's way. R.C. Sproul calls it the divide between godliness and godlessness. The godly person is deeply concerned with the things of God. Instead, and then the godless person is not concerned with the things of God. Instead, he's, he's, he's preoccupied with what's happening around him. He's, he's preoccupied with his business doing well, rather than the things of God. The religious leaders were preoccupied by jealousy because they were losing influence. They couldn't see that what was happening was the way of God and that going against it would make them against God. In the divide of godliness and godlessness, they were godless as they sought to fight against God and to stop. For you and for I, we need to look at our own lives, and we need to evaluate them and, 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 and these things. We need to ask ourselves, where is my heart? What is my chief concern? Am I preoccupied with the things of this world, the things of God, or does my heart beat for the things of God? Am I seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, or is there some other priority or some other ambition or some goal that is taking my energy and I'm devoting that to my energy to it. So we see later on, as as Galileo says, you might even be found opposing God. So I pray that we wouldn't be so stupid that we would scoff, so foolish that we would scoff, or roll our eyes at what God has done, is doing, and what his word says. Either we are submitting to God or we're fighting him, and to fight God is always a losing battle. So they, take, so they took his advice, as it says. See, the plans of God will always succeed in his timing, 
not mine, not yours, in his. So that requires trust. And that requires going back, starting from Genesis and reading all the way through the Bible, how God has always kept his promises and how God will always accomplish his goals. And I don't know the whys, but I know who my God is. The two rebels mentioned failed, but even the Sadducees and the Pharisees failed to succeed because it's only God's plans that will always succeed and nothing will stop the word of the Lord from increasing. I was reading a blog this week by a man named Tim Challies, a great Canadian boy, that asked the question about what the greatest miracle he's ever seen is. And he, he goes on to answer that the greatest miracle that he's ever seen is the providence of God. Because it's, it is witness, uh, because it's the providence of God that he has witnessed the evidence and the intricacy and the perfect timing of God's providence. And we can witness how God has carefully arranged the circumstances so that events unfold in a way that provided his detailed involvement in our affairs. And we see that coming through even here. God's plan was that his word would continue to increase. His promise to his disciples was that to go and make disciples of, what, of all nations, not just the people in Jerusalem, but all nations. And God is using his apostles to begin that. There are events that we have witnessed when, when things just so happened so, in such a way that the only thing that we can say is that the Lord did this. And here's another example. We see that in God's providence, one man steps in and saves the apostles from, dead, from death. He wasn't a follower of Jesus, and all evidence says that he wasn't, but the word of the Lord continues to increase. If it were up to the councils, the apostles would have been dead. But God had other plans as the church began to be persecuted more and more, and as the word of the Lord continued to increase, for you and me, we can read the news, and it can be incredibly discouraging, can it not? There's some days where I'm like, I, like, I just don't even open the news app because I'm of that age. I don't read the newspaper. What's that? But here I am reminded once again of God's providence, which means that there's a purpose and a plan for everything. No one is able to overthrow the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel isn't stopped by geographical or linguistic or social or religious or cultural or ethnic boundaries. It is triumphantly crosses all of those lines. In fact, the harder one tries to stop it, the faster it grows. So the religious leaders let them go, but not before they take a beating. So we see in verses 40 to 42 that counting it joy to suffer for Jesus' name. So what is the outcome of all of this is that happening? In verse 40, the council takes their pound of flesh and they beat them as they, as, as, as they charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus, as they say. So let's recap a little bit. The apostles were teaching and doing signs and wonders in the temple. That's what's causing all of this. And the apostles are arrested. The angel of the Lord frees them from prison and tells them to go and continue to teach and to preach. So they go back to the temple square and they begin to preach. But when the council goes to the prison where they swear they put them, they're not there. And they find him there, these men preaching in the temple square. 
And then they kindly nudged them back to the council with the guards. And Peter gives, gave the gospel in about a 35-word focusing message, entirely focusing on Jesus Christ. The council is full of jealousy to the point that they want to kill the apostles. So now they are facing a death sentence as the apostles gave the ultimatum. The apostles give the ultimatum, not the council. The authorities demand something that was about that was against what God demanded, and there wasn't any room for the debate for the apostles. The apostles had to obey God, not man. But that gets lowered to a warning and a good old beating, not death. And this beating would have been a flogging. It's a, an idea of a, 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 taking a leather whip, and he would just whip the people with it. About 39 lashes would be a flogging. So imagine being whipped 39 times. Now, what's their response? In verse 41, tells us, they rejoice. So picture this with me. I can picture and just imagine these men coming out of whatever this room was where they just got the beating of their life. Maybe they're holding each other up. They got bruised ribs and lacerations in their heads and all over themselves and they're kind of like stumbling as they're walking out of this room and what do you think their response would be grunting maybe some complaining no they're carrying each other out of this room rejoicing imagine the confusion on the faces of the council members of those people as they watch these men walking out with bleeding and beaten up, rejoicing. They aren't complaining, but in the midst of their grunts of pain, they rejoice. And what we see again throughout Acts and here is that the persecution doesn't lead to a hiding or fear, but to even more boldness. This is a concrete example of rejoicing in suffering that should be part of any Christian who's under persecution. This is the same word that Paul uses to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 1, verse 24, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. These point to the words of of encouragement that Paul is giving to the church in Lestria after being stoned for preaching and teaching the gospel. I think of Acts 14, verse 22, that says that through many tribulations we might enter the kingdom of God. So why rejoice in such hardships? Why would the apostles do that? The apostles rejoice because they are convinced of one thing, that God is on their side. And it's because they know that they, that they respond in this way. They don't hide, they don't run out in fear, they, don't, they respond to the beating with rejoicing. Maybe the apostles are thinking of Jesus' words in Luke 6, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Or maybe they're remembering Jesus' promises in Luke 21, verse 22. But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. 
They are rejoicing because this is just further evidence of God's grace in their lives. We ca- they were counted, their lives were proof of what God had done inside their lives, inside their hearts. They are rejoicing because the worth of Jesus' name surpassed whatever circumstances they find themselves in, because Jesus suffered on their behalf, because they were counted as his. They were suffering because they were Christ's. And that joy of being known as Jesus surpassed whatever could come their way. Because Jesus suffered for them, they, counted, they were counted as the, theirs, as his. And when we look at other passages like Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, not only that, the Apostle Paul continues on, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or 1 Peter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, it, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the testing so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not know him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressibly and filled with glory. Or maybe thinking of James 1. Our youth are going through James right now. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. See, for the Christian who suffers for his or her faith, it's different. Why? Because when we understand the suffering for Jesus' name means God is on our side. But not only that, that God is even using our suffering to make us more like him. And that's where the rejoicing comes in. I can say I suffered for Jesus. I live in such a way that I'm counted as one of his. Thank you, Jesus, for the grace you have poured out on me that counts me as yours. It is in this temporary suffering that I'm reminded of my eternal hope. So what worth is Jesus' name to you that brings a hope that brings you through all circumstances, giving you boldness to go forward with the message about Jesus? Because in verse 42, they continue to be the annoying gnat, so they don't stop preaching and teaching. They continue to meet every day, every day, Proclaiming the word of this life, and that life is found in Jesus, and that repentance of sin and belief in Jesus brings life. The Sanhedrin's threats did not stop the apostles as they continued to proclaim the message about Jesus because they understood the worth of Jesus. 
And they began to proclaim. This is actually the first time we see this word for evangelizing being used. They continued to go out proclaiming that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. And they did this publicly and privately. As they were in the temple complex, as they went to various homes, the gospel was being preached on the street corner just as much as it was in the neighbor's house. Because Jesus is worth it. The worth of Jesus' name didn't allow the apostles to be silent. But it also allowed them to face any hardships in their life with joy and rejoicing because it reminded them of God's grace in their lives. Jesus was the treasure worth giving up everything for. So what? What do you get excited for? The apostles rejoice at the idea of being found worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. There's no amount of persecution that is going to stop the apostles who will actually face death again and will die, who are Jesus' witnesses and have received Jesus' promises along with the Holy Spirit. The apostles believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited promised one who came as a baby. That, that's what Advent is all about. That's what Advent encourages us to do, is to slow down and reflect upon what it means that Jesus Christ added to himself humanity, as Philippians says, was born of a baby, grew up and died in our place. The apostles believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word to Israel and the world. So to suffer for Jesus, who suffered for them, brings them joy. So how much would it take for you to be silent? What discomforts would you be willing to suffer? And we don't say this flippantly. But it does make us think, for all of us who are in Christ, what is Jesus' name worth to you? See, the apostles were social outsiders who faced serious persecution for their open belief in Jesus as the Messiah, and that Jesus is the only way to the Father, that he is the truth and the life. They understood the worth of Jesus' name because they understand the love that God has poured out on them through His Son, Jesus Christ. And they were amazed that they were worthy to suffer for His name. Do you feel as though you can rejoice when facing persecution for the name of Jesus? Do you feel like you can rejoice in any hardship because you understand the worth of Jesus? So Martin Luther and his hymn, said it this way, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body thy may kill. Can you sing that song with him? Do you mean it? Would you give up social prestige, job security for the sake of the gospel? Because these men were willing to give up all of those things because they understood the worth of Jesus. Two things come out of this passage. First, they rejoiced that, as it says, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Think about, think about this with me, about the difference knowing Jesus makes. Think about how, to change, how it changes how we look at life here and how it looks at death. 
The apostles weren't scared of death or suffering because they know they knew how Jesus changed death from fear to a glorious anticipation of being in the presence of Jesus Christ. It's Hebrews 2, verse 15. And delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death doesn't bring fear anymore. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 to 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, when we believe these words and the promises of Christ, and it goes deep into our souls, deep into our hearts, we can rejoice in all circumstances, even death, because we have the most valuable treasure possible that can never be taken away, and that is Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think we only want to get to heaven so that we can get to heaven. But we get to get to heaven because that's where Jesus is. As the great hip-hop artist, group, beautiful eulogy, states, how we react to suffering exposes the worship in most of us. It gives us a look, close look at what our thoughts and fears and emotions are. So can we sing along with John Newton and how sweet the name of Jesus sounds? Till then... I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath, and may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. So the apostles rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What difference does the name of Jesus make in your life? What difference does it make to how you live your life here and now, and even how you look at death? To quote a great cinematic film, fight, you may die, run and you will live at least a while, and dying on your bed many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here as a young man and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. That's from Barry Hart, by the way. But for the Christian, this is even more true. It's more true because our freedom has already been won. Our life has already been freed. For they can take our bodies, but they can't take our soul. For in Christ we are free indeed, as John 8, 36 says. So if, you, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What that means is that in Christ we have a freedom from the penalty of sin for as Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those in him. And in Ephesians 2 says that no longer are we children of wrath. In Christ we have freedom from the power of sin as Hebrews eleven six 6 says, that no longer are we in bondage to sin, but now we can do right, but now we can do righteousness. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, but with faith, we can please him. Because of the freedom that comes through Christ one day, and one day, hopefully soon, we pray that Lord Jesus come quickly, one day we will be free from the presence of sin. As Romans 8, 28 says, that when our eternal life is fulfilled, we will be like him and without sin. 
So whatever this momentary suffering that may be happening for the name of Jesus, whatever this momentary suffering that you're just going through in general, we can rejoice in that because we have been counted as his and we will one day see him face to face, free from the presence of sin, free from that frustration of always putting an idol above him. So what change does the name of Jesus do in your life? How about in the life, how you look at life and in death? Because the worth of Jesus' name sends us out with the message rejoicing in all circumstances, which brings us to that next part that we learn from here. It's because of the worth of Jesus that they can't stay silent. In verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They had discovered that this life here and now was preparation for the life to come. This wasn't permanent. The life that they have right now is not permanent, but the one to come was permanent. They were, as Hebrews eleven sixteen says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As it says previously, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. They couldn't be stopped because their eyes were on the greatest treasure of Jesus Christ and the certain hope that only comes through him. Is there anything better? Honestly, like, and I think this is a question I've been asking myself all week. Is there anything better than knowing the forgiveness of sins that is offered to us in Jesus? Is there anything better? And sharing this news is the call on the life of the Christian because the worth of Jesus' name sends us out with this message, rejoicing in all circumstances. And I wonder what our current reaction to circumstances really tells us about how we view the worth of Jesus Christ. There's a commentary that ended its comments on this passage that just has a bunch of questions that just came out me like a machine gun. I just I want to read them for you, and I want you to ask them yourself. Does the good news of the gospel grip you in such a way that you cannot help but speak of Jesus as these early Christians do? Are you so in love with the message of redemption that you have tasted that you want others to know of it and experience it too? We think of these apostles as heroes, he continues on, and perhaps they are, and we are awed by their boldness and their tenacity, yet they were only the first in a long line of bold Christians throughout the centuries. Do you not want to be among them? Do you wish to become a Christian hero? It is so easy to conform to the mediocrity and fail to be enthusiastic for the gospel. Will you not pray that God would give you a heart that is on fire for the gospel? These questions hit me hard this week. And I hope they do to you too. And if you're honest, if you're truly honest with yourself as you look at those questions, you might be wanting to spend more time in prayer. I remember I was complaining to a friend of mine, which I do often, and uh, I was like, I don't know how to do this evangelism thing. 
I just don't. He's an evangelist. God has gifted him with that ability. He used to drive from Burlington all the way to London, actually, to do street preaching and to be trained in that. And he reminded me in that, he says, 2 Timothy 4, 5, do the work of the evangelist. Why? Because the worth of Jesus' name sends us out with his message, rejoicing in all circumstances. How we react to suffering, especially for the name of Jesus, exposes the worship in most of us and gives us a close look at what our thoughts, fears, and emotions are. So let us pray that we would have a heart that is on fire for the gospel because all that may or may not happen is worth it all because Jesus suffered and died for you to give you life. So what brings you excitement? Let's pray.